Welcome to the Sports Nutritionist Podcast, and in this episode, I am joined by the one and only Dr. Eric Helms from 3D Muscle Journey and AUT. Eric is a colleague of mine. He is also an advisory board member within the association with yours truly. And in this particular episode, we go through the inspiration behind the paper, the paradigm shift required for bodybuilding, and what really inspired him to go on this journey to create this publication and why it's useful and then what how this is really relevant for practitioners, right? Because this is the Sports Nutritionist podcast and what we do on this particular podcast is cover how this is pragmatic for practitioners. So I thoroughly enjoyed recording this. I hope you enjoy it and I look forward to hearing about what you guys think in the comments after this. Now, good to see you, Alex. <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming on and good to see you too, my friend. It's a pleasure. Now, in this particular episode, we're going to be talking about the paper that you published on the paradigm shift to a sustainable approach in bodybuilding. Mm. Uh, We're going to be covering the intention behind it, and then we're going to sort of flesh out and peel back the layers behind it from a practitioner's pragmatic approach and application of that within this as well. And I guess to preface the whole intent behind these series of interviews that we're doing is, Hey, you know, like I think, um, on, on, on the, on the cult, on the iron culture podcast, you've referenced it a few times. I know it's come up on the strong by science podcast as well, where it's like, Hey, yet another like muscle research or nutrition science podcast. And so, Hey, we're the association thought we're going to step in as well. And we're going to do this like completely unknown thing as well and trailblaze and do another nutrition podcast. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. We're coming for Danny Lennon as well. You know what? He's doing a bad job and everybody knows it. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's important. We need some real, real representation in the sports nutrition yeah, we, uh, realm. We need to lift our game, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, sure. He's got great audio quality. He has, literally the who's who of the nutrition science world. Uh, he's very intelligent. He's a, a great interviewer. Um, and he has, I think he's close to 400 episodes, but I mean, low hanging fruit, right? I mean, come on. I, I, he's got a, he's got a good accent. You know, he's got those, those baby blue eyes, those baby blues, I think are most of it. Um, yeah, we need something with a little more substance, honestly. Um, which is a little ironic given he's on the SNA board. So obviously we think he has enough substance, but really it's just to kind of, you know, level, we're trying to help him. That's what I, I see. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, like we know that he likes to consider himself to be the Dexter of the nutrition science world. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. just want to let him go have fun in, in, in those other pastimes. And we'll sort of, we'll keep things on autopilot for a while. Maybe, maybe lift the standard a little bit. We'll but, be as Harry. Uh, we'll give him a code. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. And, um, but, but one of the intentions with this was to approach things from sort of less, uh, less a specific research, uh, perspective, but more from an application for the practitioners and an experiential reflection piece as well. So we've known each other for a few years now. Um, so I know your story, but for those of you, or for those of our listeners who don't really know your story, they probably uh, like, you know, they might know of you a little bit and they're like, oh yeah, that's that guy who did the pyramid books. They were really good. Or I, I've seen him on Jeff Nippard's YouTube stuff. Part of that, it might've been some of the Matt Ogre stuff on YouTube. Um, he's that online coach with the bodybuilding company. 
give us a little bit of a rundown about like your story and how you got here because I've I've actually said it. I've actually said it in a previous sort of like interview style episode we've done where we just sort of really dumb down some of the stuff within the association and the body for people because I can talk in complexities and intricacies that isn't really good, I guess, for the entry level person. But uh, I've sort of said it previously, given a bit of a background as to your story. And I want to see how accurate my recollection was. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see how, how well you stalked me. I guess that's, that's the question, but honestly, <laughs> you, you hit the highlights. I've really just kind of ridden the coattails of the, the, the hottest thing on YouTube at the different stages since like 2011. Um, but no, in all, all seriousness, um, it's an honor to be part of the association honor to be on. And, uh, yeah, for, as far as me, I, I am just someone who really just fell in love with lifting Um, and it came at a very, you know, important time in my life, uh, where I needed to have an outlet that was positive. Um, and I think like many of us, it started a little more masochistic than positive lifting, uh, but it became something positive and very, um, empowering for me. Um, and specifically competitive bodybuilding did. Um, so I started as a personal trainer in 05. I started lifting in 04. Um, and I did my first powerlifting meet in 06 and my first natural bodybuilding season in 07. Um, and I, I think just my personality type is that I tend to go kind of all in on something that I enjoy. And I don't really know how to do things that I'm not passionate about. Um, and honestly that manifested as what kind of looked like laziness as, as a, as a younger man, as a teenager, cause I wasn't passionate about school. So that means I did what was necessary to get by. Uh, but I put my time and effort into things like video games or basketball or breakdancing or things that I thought were cool. Oh, right? Breakdancing. So you already missed a key part of my bio, apparently. I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> Why not? That's a that's a key feature that we discuss on all of my podcasts. So that in high school I used to breakdance. That's, no. that's that's missing from the email signature. It is. It is um, mediocre pop locker in in the late nineties, <laughs> early early two thousands. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, man. So essentially, um, I decided to just, just make lifting everything, you know? So it, it became a career. It became a way I expressed myself. I started to compete. Um, and I found, you know, my first bodybuilding season, I did pretty well, you know, for a first timer, like I got into decent condition, but I gained nearly 50 pounds. So 22 kilos in two months after my show. Mm. And that's kind of on the extreme end of of the the post-contest rebound that you'll see in in bodybuilders, but it's by no means a solitary story. Um, And, you know, at the time it, it, my, the, the way I was bodybuilding, it wasn't great for my marriage. It, it wasn't great for my sanity. Um, I was probably diagnosable with an eating disorder after my show for a while. I was certainly engaging in binge eating regularly and feeling terrible about it and not knowing how to stop. Um, and also realizing that I, I really wasn't alone, but at that time, nobody was talking about it. So one of the, the the things that I wanted to do moving forward was I wanted to take a, a more evidence and science-based approach, but I realized that the science at that time was very much agnostic at the best to the, the mental side of it, uh, the psychology of bodybuilding and the psychology of, you know, people's body image as it relates to the sport and people's relationship with food uh, and the sustainability of the sport. There was a, I think there's a pretty high attrition rate. 
So in 09, we fast forward a couple of years, I was going to be competing again. Um, myself and Alberto Nunez, who I met in 07, we did our first show together and he became one of my closest friends. Um, and he, he supported me in some of the toughest times in my life. So he, we, we've, we, we've bonded not only over the sport, but after that, we both knew that we wanted to do something with lifting, lifting and, and bodybuilding, which, which had given us so much and so many opportunities in life. So in 2010, we formed a little thing, late 2009, early 2010, we, we formed a little thing called uh, 3D Muscle Journey, which actually started as our other colleague, Jeff Albert's blog. Uh, and it was mostly documenting his return to the sport with a different mindset because he'd been competing since the late 90s, Jeff. Um, and it had always been for purposes for typically for winning, very extrinsic related goals. And he also was having these... Um, on and off negative kind of black and white yo-yo experiences with the sport, uh, gaining a lot of weight, losing a lot of weight, um, and, and really just kind of struggling. And what he had found through trial and error and experience in terms of changing his mindset to being more focused on the journey than the outcome and doing it for reasons related to personal fulfillment, intrinsic reasons rather than extrinsic reasons. And myself and Alberto's experience we combined that with another person we, we were competing with and we met Brad Loomis, who was also someone who uh, kind of embodied those values. We came together and we were trying to make, and we still are, an impact, a uh, positive impact on the drug-free bodybuilding community um, by still emphasizing the things that, you know, really gets bodybuilders excited, which is hard work, you know, the three Ds of 3D Muscle Journey is dedication, desire, and discipline. So that's still, you know, the, the blood, sweat, and tears, if you will, the hardcoreness, the black and white imagery of, uh, of, of training, you know, um, the blood and guts, if you will, if you're, if you're a Dorian Yates fan, that's still a key component about, of who we are. But we try to take a much more career-oriented perspective. So how do we help bodybuilders stay in the game as long as they want to compete on their terms and not find themselves needing to walk away from the sport because it's, it chewed them up and spit them out. So they can, you know, compete on their own terms uh, and feel like they're in the driver's seat. Cause I can tell you as a coach and as just a competitor who, who's talked to my uh, peers that many people don't know how to manage their food or their body or their, their stress or the mentality without competitive bodybuilding. And it becomes this thing where they're, they're blowing up in terms of body weight off season. And the only way they know how to deal with it is then the next contest prep. Mm. Um, so, you know, that, that's one small facet because it's, you know, an anticipation of what we're going to be talking about. But a big part of what 3D Muscle Journey started as and is today and continues to evolve into is helping people find uh, balance with their sport, um, which isn't necessarily a soft or less hardcore approach. Balance requires more hard work because you don't just get to go all in on bodybuilding and eschew the rest of your life. And, you know, balance literally means the constant effort of, of going between two extremes so that you can find that, that, that right, uh, mix of everything so that you can be a good, um, sister, brother, father, mother, husband, wife, uh, worker, uh, teacher, whatever you do. Mm. Um, and, and still do the sport that many of us love. Uh, but, but often like Icarus find that if we get too close to it, we can burn and fall to the earth, you know? So anyway, long, unnecessarily, 
descriptive uh, dealio on what 3D Muscle Journey is, but kind of to speed along this, what I do and, and what I'm about, um, I am the chief science officer of 3D Muscle Journey. So while I just started as one of the coaches, I've always been the one who's most interested in kind of the you know, hashtag evidence-based side of it and incorporating science into it. So while my other colleagues have drilled down and become full-time coaches and have been for now a decade, um, I dropped my client load down starting in 2013 uh, after I completed my second master's and I started on my PhD uh, here at Auckland University of Technology. So I did uh, a master's in uh, exercise science in the States while I was still a personal trainer after I did my bachelor's uh, in completed those in 2011 and 2012, um, and then moved to New Zealand, uh, which is where I am now. Um, as I got, I did an MPhil focused on, uh, macronutrient distribution and sorry, macronutrient, uh, and protein manipulation for dieting strength athletes and bodybuilders. The big focus of mine there was how do we improve the retention of lean mass? And then for my PhD, I specifically looked at manipulating, uh, training via RPE and auto-regulate, auto-regulating powerlifting training. And I finished that in 2017. And towards the end of my PhD, uh, I took on a role as a research fellow here at AUT. So I'm an academic, um, and I'm also the chief science officer of 3DMJ. Uh, like you mentioned, I have books where I, I write about all this stuff incorporated into uh, a kind of a hierarchical structure called the muscle and strength pyramids. I have one for nutrition and training. And then I'm also one of the founders and contributors to monthly applications and strength sport. Um, and then I got the lovely stuff I do with you as, uh, as part of the, the greater SNA cinematic universe where we got the NCGM and, uh, and, and, and SNA where we're trying to make a, a positive impact on, on the sports nutrition uh, world. So that's me competitor, coach, science guy, talks too much on podcasts. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great resume. So if I were to just provide a, like an academic and professional timeline for you, um, one thing that you omitted, but I included in my, in my recollection was that you were in the air force correctly. Oh yeah. You got that. So, so shortly after I stopped breakdancing uh, and finished high school, uh, I did, I did an enlistment in the air force, which thank you, uncle Sam, because that's the only way, uh, I could have afforded, um, going to uni, to uni. Um, cause I didn't come from a family that, uh, I didn't come from a family of means, let's put it that way. So, yeah, I mean, I'm from a similar background. So it was air force, then, uh, stopped that then started personal training and undergraduate study. Correct. Finished the undergraduate study, kept personal training and coaching, but at that point started, uh, refining into more specifically strength athletes and bodybuilders as you were going into your, uh, masters. Then completed your master's, looked, uh, and then started your PhD at Auckland University of Technology a few, a few years later. Uh, and at that point, started reducing your client load a fair bit more and then kept going through the PhD to the point where you graduated, became a research fellow, and then the client load effectively became very, very, very minuscule um, at that point. And now you're more an active researcher, educational contributor, um, reviewer, and I guess like content producer, like, like for the latest research, right? You're so, all over it. So you like effectively coach for just over a decade with clients. Yeah. And I still have a few. So I've got about the most I've ever had since 20, 16 is probably five clients yep. um, from 
2005 until 2010, I was a full-time personal trainer. That's not true. 2005, 2009, I was a full-time personal trainer. 2010, the first job I had in the fitness community after being a personal trainer um, was right around when I finished my bachelor's. And I actually taught at a technical institute is the, probably the best equivalent for our Australian and New Zealand listeners. And for the American listeners, it's an associate's degree program uh, for personal trainers. Um, so they got an applied associate's degree in, uh, in fitness and believe in applied fitness studies. Um, I did that at Bryan College, Bryan University. So I really cut my chops as an educator teaching, because uh, at the time it was 2000, yeah, it was 2010. So it was right when the economy was starting to recover. Mm-hmm. So I had two types of, of students. I had people fresh out of high school. So 10 years younger than me who, um, had just lifted in high school really, and, and weren't sure what they wanted to do, but they were into fitness. Um, so I wasn't great at relating to them cause I was, you know, I'd been in school now for, you know, since then. And I, I was just a little enough older than them that, that, I wasn't the, the perfect teacher for them. Uh, and then I also had people who had lost their jobs during the recession, but who had always been into fitness getting back into it. So people who were at least 10 years older than me. So it was one of the hardest jobs that I've had. And I was really bad at it to start, but I got really good at it as I did it, uh, where I had to take all the concepts I really thought I knew, but I'd effectively just memorized and repeated as a personal trainer and had to figure out how do I explain him to this guy who is, you know, an ex construction worker who's 48 years old. And how do I explain it to this 19 year old who lifts? And that's the extent of their, their life experience, you know? Um, so, yeah. If you can figure out how to explain it to someone who has been out of school for 20 years and someone who was just in high school last year, um, when you are really neither one, uh, it forces you to learn the stuff you thought you actually knew. And that kind of built my confidence uh, to then keep going. And that's why I decided to do a master's. I got my CSCS uh, and just, just kept feeling like, you know, maybe I do have the, the intellectual chops and the critical thinking to keep taking this forward. Um, and it also gave me an opportunity to give back to the bodybuilding community. Um, I don't talk about this a whole lot, but my father passed away in 09 during my contest prep. And really the only way I had to deal with that at at that time, uh, was to try to process that through the sport. Um, and you know, he, he passed away due to mental illness and, you know, I've always tried to raise money for, um, for suicide prevention since then, it's been something that's always important to me and, uh, bodybuilding and the career I've had from it has allowed me to do that. So it, it allowed me the, that, that first initial step to having a way to process it. Obviously it's not the same thing as like getting therapy and they don't recommend people just be like, you know what, instead of therapy, I'm just going to diet. Um, it's not the same, but it, it, for me, it allowed me to, to start that process. And it gave me the financial means to have a career that allowed me to move to New Zealand. Uh, and then I was able to give back to the sport uh, by doing research. Because what I think people don't realize is that going to school for your bachelor's and even postgraduate degree, if you don't do research, is largely about you know learning things to hopefully build your career. And of course, you might take it into practice and, and do great things for society. But research, I think is what people will realize is it's it's almost purely altruistic. Um, yeah. Researchers, like being an academic is, is, is a pain in the butt. It's very challenging. Um, it's a hard game to get into. Um, and really what, it, what you're doing is you're contributing knowledge. So especially in applied, applied literature and translational research, um, I saw it as an opportunity to use this skill that I was building confidence in and finding out, oh, I'm, I, I kind of... 
like I can figure stuff out. Like my, my delts aren't as wide as I want, but I, I'm pretty good at learning how to build people's delts, you know, but, but, but more importantly, like, so I've always enjoyed having the opportunity to give back to the community that did something for me through research. And, you know, what we're going to be talking about, um, the paper I wrote in 2019, despite the fact that it wasn't in the area that I actually went to school for, despite the fact that it has nothing to do with protein or autoregulation, uh, nor is it kind of that sciencey nerd cool stuff that I'm probably most known for and that I really, really enjoyed. If you ask me today, which publication do you feel is the most important one you've put out? It's that one by far, um, because it is about helping people who love the same sport I do, um, find a way to do it in a way that, that, that pays more heed to their long-term mental health, yeah, which I, I think is one of the biggest issues we have in bodybuilding. I would say it's the like most confrontationally, uh, like forces you to realistically accept something, uh, piece of research that I've, uh, come across in exercise and nutrition sciences today. Probably, probably that and Reds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think Reds is Reds is a good parallel in that um, we just start to see how often athletes are are being biologically pushed to their limit and and the consequences that extend outside of their sport. Um, you know, another area that I think is similar and it's a useful parallel to help people understand it is the, the concussion research and the stuff that's, that's mm. been so controversial in, in, in the NFL and rugby, um, and is now very different now, you know, parents think very differently about whether their, uh, their, their son or daughter is going to play contact sports. Mm. Um, they think about the long-term health implications. I, you know, I wasn't a football player by any means, but I played one year of football as uh, in, in high school in the late nineties in Northern California, which after Texas is one of the most crazy football regions. And if you got a concussion, like nothing happened, mm-hmm. like, like, unless you were unconscious, you know, then, then yeah, the, the medics would be out on the field. There was no, how many concussions have you had? Let's do a little test. If you've had X number, you can't play again. No, I mean, I had my, my friend, uh, David Mathis, who, um, just awesome athlete. He asked me, he got on, he was a running back. He was on the field and he got clocked really hard, came off the field and started yelling at me because he told me that I stole his wallet. And I was like, David, we're in pads. This doesn't make any sense. And I tried to go tell the coach. I was like, Hey man, something's wrong with David. Like he's, he's not all there. And it was like, David, you good? Yeah, coach, put me back in. And he's playing the next play, you know? So things have changed a lot in that sport in the last couple of decades for a good reason. Mm. Um, and I think you can love a sport and you can provide apt criticism of it. It's kind of the same concept as like, you can be someone who critiques your, your nation's policies and still be a patriot. Cause that's your motivation. Yeah. Like you, you believe in the best thing your, your nation can be, you know? Um, so the motivation for me to put this paper out was to say like, Hey, like this, this is, this is, this is, this sport's awesome. It's, it's, it's been the whole reason I have purpose and success in life. And it's given me, uh, built more self-efficacy than anything I could have imagined. Um, and, and it also chews some people up and spits them out maybe, you know, so let's tra- take an academic look at this and really figure out like, what can we do so that the people who want to compete in the sport have the highest probability for getting the, all the benefits and the lowest probability from getting the downsides. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I would echo that. And it's like what I observed within the industry in the last, I would say, probably about a decade ago was that how how you're referencing the sport, chewing people up and spitting them out. We were just seeing people, you know, they would prep for a show and it was, you know, just this thing that they were doing in life. And then all of a sudden they'd be in like prep mode and comp mode for a year or two their Facebook profile pictures because like Instagram wasn't the thing 10 years ago, their Facebook profile pictures would be them on stage with the trophy or something like that. And then two years would go by and then everything bodybuilding or competition was deleted and removed from their social media profiles. And then they'd become this professional that had, you know, reconnected with their job performance or reconnected with their personal life or something like that. And it was sort of like this, dark thing in their past that they didn't want to, you know, remember. And that, that was unfortunately like a, a more common than you would like to think sort of occurrence that, that was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd say it's pro- that probably was a prevailing commonality till probably about four ish years ago. Yeah. It's, it's, I think, uh, unless you've been in and around the sport, you, it's hard to, it's hard for people to get it. Cause I think a lot of the times what you see in social media and when you look at the professional ranks and the people with the, the amazing physiques and who do seem to have some degree of balance, like when you read interviews with Olympians, I mean, we're, we're talking about the most extreme bodies in the sport on copious amounts of, of anabolic steroids and have been for decades and, and other drugs. And those are, those are still people who are that, 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 that's a sample tainted by survivorship bias. You know, like you can look at Ronnie Coleman, who is like, he's a very extreme person, but he still loves lifting. He's, he's had a, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a wonderful guy. He, he's, 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 he's bodybuilding's in his blood, you know, like he has had all these hip surgeries, um, which maybe related to the way he trains, but also if you actually listen to his story and this is a total side tangent, the first surgery he got was, was kind of uh, messed him up. He probably yeah. shouldn't have had it. And, yeah. it. and then it's been, you know, complications secondary to that. Um, there's certainly been people who have trained heavier, like power lifters had a surgery and been far better off or worse off. So anyway, the, some people look at Ronnie and like, oh, he's, a, he's an example of what bodybuilding can do. It can destroy bodies. And I'm like, well, or, or he had a bad surgery. But the mm-hmm. point is he has all these pain, all this pain, he's all these surgeries and he still loves to train. So he's absolutely not someone who, you know, like bodybuilding ruined their life. And it's this dark thing in their past. He took it to the highest level, competed for decades, put his body through absolute hell. And I think he would do it all over again. He feels it greatly benefited his life. And, you know, objectively it has, you know, he went from, you know, being a working class blue collar guy to being one of the most, yeah, yeah, one of the most famous, uh, you know, you know, bodybuilders of all time. And, uh, but that's not most people I can tell you, you know, if you look at like the amateur ranks and even in natural bodybuilding, the, the people who compete regularly, um, I don't know if they're the majority or the minority of everyone who actually gets into it, but they're not everybody. And there's a lot of people who are left behind who do it once and that's it, or who don't even get on stage and you never see them at all. Mm. You know, so there are certainly like, if you go to shows, you're going to see some people there's, you know, a a good at at a local amateur show that doesn't have any kind of uh, qualifier. uh, You're going to see a lot of people in various stages. You know, some people do it as kind of a bucket list thing. 
you know, some people turn 12 week transformation at their gym into, Hey, let me do a, a physique or a bikini competition. Um, some people want to do it as the capstone to having lost hundreds of pounds of weight. And all those stories are awesome. Um, it's a little different as you get into like the professional stage and, and, and where you have to qualify, but some of those people compete once and don't intend to. So that's something you have to quantify in your head. Some people have done that show multiple times and they're trying to, you know, compete at the next level. Um, and, and they're clearly, you know, finding enough balance with the sport that they can do it multiple times and, and, and still come back. But there are a lot of people who will, they'll do the show, show once and you'll never see them again. Like you talked about. Um, and, and that's the, that's, that's the number that I want to hopefully, well, either. And, and here's, here's a funny thing is maybe they shouldn't do the sport at all. Maybe it's not, they need to do the sport healthier, yeah. but a big value I have, and this is a parallel with research is, is genuine informed consent. Yeah. And that's something you need to get ethically when you do research. So like if, if I submit an ethics application to do research at AUT, that's something we need to make sure we have. And that genuine part um, speaks to like, it's not just about telling someone, Hey, it's a tough sport, you know, and like, it's, it's hard on your body. You'd be really hungry here, you know, let's get after it. It's, it's, it's more like, you know, we need to, to, to really inform people, um, kind of to the same extent that now parents really think about what are they, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? If, if my kid wants to play, um, you know, football or rugby, yeah. And this is a little different because we're dealing with adults. We're not, it's not a parent making the decision, but I really do believe that, um, someone should really know what they're getting into, uh, before they compete. So if you, if you listen to the 3DMJ podcast, or if you read stuff that I write about, um, I talk about some of the hardest things in bodybuilding, which are really not that sexy. It's like, what about the weight gain after the show? You know, mm. like, um, what do you do between like between shows is really where people get messed up. You know, how, how do we, how do we address that? Um, what, yeah. what do we do about, you know, you learn this whole way of looking at nutrition through, you know, meal plans or tracking macros or manipulating and, and removing certain food groups, whatever approach you take that you're not really sure what to do after that, when you move into the, the off season, is it just a binge fest or is it, okay, I put the carbs back in or, okay, how much body fat am I supposed to gain? All of a sudden you go into this kind of like type one control based thinking about food for probably the first time for most people, not all, as we'll talk about, because a lot of people with prior eating disorders get into the sport where, you know, you're eating based on hunger or maybe you're eating based on performance, but most people regulate their nutrition intake by how they feel. Uh, and that's obviously, you know, muddied water. It can be influenced by our environment, smelling subway cookies, being so sedentary that your hunger is dysregulated. Yes, we live in a modern food environment, but, uh, most people, their, their baseline setting is very different than what they do when they get into bodybuilding, where now it's all about exerting control, weighing foods, having calorie restriction. Um, and that is totally true. Whether you do it in the evidence-based way or you do it the bro way, it's just, different methods. Mm. And no one really gets to escape from that because there is a, a biological necessity to get really, really lean. And that's something that some people don't even know that they think bodybuilding, maybe they would know it if they actually decided to compete, but you talk to like, you know, a random uncle on the holidays and they're like, you know, so you're getting big for your show. And it's like, yeah, actually there's 30 pounds to compete. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Like why aren't you eating more food? You need more muscle. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about the sport and there's, um, 
you know, which, which is fine. It's a niche sport. It's very weird. I get that. But I think if someone is, is going to consider competing, they need to have uh, a lot of information at their disposal. And ideally the coaches who are going to take them there. Cause I think a lot of first time competitors do have a personal trainer or a coach. Mm. Uh, Cause it, it's, it's difficult to know what to do, or at least historically it has been there's YouTube now. So some people do run it solo. Um, they need to, we need to try to get the right information in the coach's hands. So they know what to do when things really go South cause they can't. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, something that just popped into my head then is I know that, for instance, like with Birdo and Jeff, they'll have like that for the majority of the time, they're at the, like their coaching limits with clients, right? And then they'll have like a waiting list. What is like, what, what, what is their limit? Like what is their client limit at any given point in time? And then how many clients for a particular season will they actually take through? Yeah, that's a great question. So each one of the coaches sets their own limits. So we kind of have a system where we have a central intake of applications and we can talk about the application process as well, because it includes a lot of aspects of mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it uh, basically whoever has their quote unquote flag up, they can, they'll, they'll get in order the, the, uh, the applications. Um, and most of us, I think, you know, it, it's similar to when I was at my peak, the most I ever had was in the mid forties number of clients. Mm-hmm. And I would say we probably have like a 60, 40 split between uh, competitors and then off season or non-competitors for the, yeah. the 40%. Um, yeah. So I think Brad, Jeff and Berto all operate somewhere around that, a, a similar number. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we, we have a mix of like, we have bi-weekly off season check-ins. We have uh, Skype clients who just, you know, video with us every once in a while. And then we have our kind of quote unquote stock standard prep clients who check in weekly. Mm-hmm. So we have some mix of that. So it doesn't always line up because if you have more bi-weekly, that's not quite the same amount of work as weekly, but I yeah. think it, it generally allow- that's a fair, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's kind of a, probably a fair average. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so, so like these are, in my opinion, like the peak coaches specifically for the sport of natural bodybuilding, um, drug-free bodybuilding and their, their, their ceilings for clients are approximately 40 clients per, per coach with about 20 to 25 of those being in season at any time. That's the most they're taking on in season. And then the rest is off season or, you know, like a non-specific date type thing from there. And I think that's, so, I mean, something that I've observed in the industry over the last decade is that people are so quick to want to get into that space and then have it have these huge teams of like hundreds of clients competing and that they're putting on stage. And if we, you know, in looking at your paper and in factoring that in, which undoubtedly, you know, I'm assuming, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that, you know, 3DMJ have most likely incorporated a lot of that stuff in your application and pre-screening process for, you know, potential clients and competitors and when they should be competing. Um, like that's the most that you can take. If you reverse engineer what, what what we can best extrapolate from the data at the moment would infer what best practice is in that setting, right? Yeah. I mean, there are certainly some people who, if they have a more narrow uh, focus on what they coach, um, like for example, I could see someone who is not doing training as well, mm. um, which, which I, I don't think is a huge deal in bodybuilding. 
Um, cause that's not the, that's not the component that is necessarily going to be contributing to a lot of the stuff we're talking about today. Um, and you could give people like, Hey, here's a PDF of some general guidelines of like, Hey, here's some volume ranges or if, okay, I work with a lot of pros. They know how to train that kind of assumption. Yeah. I think we don't make that assumption and we spend a lot of effort and time on, on training. So we think it's a huge component, but that is absolutely something that is not necessarily, uh, a key component to a lot of the the mental health stuff and bodybuilding. Like, like you won't see training in this paper I'm writing about, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. now obviously you don't want to, like, I mean, I've hurt myself in prep that, that there's physical health issues of, of you know, basically you're going to get reds and then you're going to try to deadlift. And then if you're dumb, like I was, you might also try to do like right. hit intervals and yeah. then your hamstring is going to be like, I'm out of here. Um, but hamstrings heal, you know, uh, but your, your mental health can be a little it's more fragile. Forever. Hamstrings heal. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, whatever. So no, I'm, I don't want to poo poo like the, the physical health, but certainly I know there are some coaches who take on more than we do and they do a very good job as far as, you know, nutrition and mental health and they have the right professionals behind them, but they don't do training. And I think that mm-hmm. can allow you because when you're doing like a, you know, a periodized program and running three week blocks every three weeks, that, that yeah. certainly will, um, will drop the number of clients you can take. It also allows you to charge more. Um, so we, we, we kind of are a one-stop shop and we like to be for our athletes because we, that way we can get a better idea of everything that's going into the collective output that we're coaching. Um, but that's certainly not the only way to do it. It's how we like to operate. Yeah, definitely. I just think personally, like personally, if it's like one coach, hundred plus clients, it's just really hard to not contribute or, or like not, mitigate or attenuate any of those potential contraindications associated with it within the sport. It's easy to miss things. That's for sure. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people would do better if they knew better, but they don't necessarily know the things that they could be missing. Mm. So we've, we've been talking kind of in and around this paper that everyone's like, what the fuck's this paper you guys are talking about? Uh, pardon, pardon my F bomb. But yeah, so I published actually, <laughs> I was literally, I think, three days out of my third show of the season when it went to press, which was pretty cool to see. Um, and it was, uh, it's, it's a review paper that I wrote. I was the lead author on it, but I wrote it with two people who are actually true, uh, professionals in, in the field of psychology, uh, Katarina Pernjak, who's doing her PhD in psychology. Um, and she is a psychologist. That's what her master's is in. And also Jake Lenarden, um, who, uh, is a, one of the most prolific, recent researchers in the field of binge eating, but he's done a lot of, uh, meta analyses and, uh, statistical analyses and regressions looking at what seems to be some of the etiology and causes and, and correlates, um, with eating disorders and body image. Um, so, uh, he's Jake's awesome. And, um, he, he's in Melbourne. Um, and, uh, I met him through actually JPS health and fitness. He's a friend of, of Jake Skepis. Uh, he connected me with, with Jake Lenarden. Um, and then Katarina Pernjack, she is actually the partner of one of my PhD students. So I, I just kind of had these, these two awesome folks, you know, kind of fall on my lap. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, this is great. Cause I've, I'm reading all of this bodybuilding specific research that is on, um, mental health. And I'm reading all of these things related to eating behavior, but sure. I took like the electives in my undergrad and my master's on like sports psychology and, and nutrition and all that. Um, and I have a, an intense study of, of sports nutrition, 
But as you well know, Alex, sports nutrition is not the same thing as eating behavior. Um, it's not the same thing as, as an RD, you know, or someone who's been trained in, in cl clinical nutrition and eating disorder management or anything like that. So I reached out to them and I said, Hey, like done a lot of coaching. Um, I've read a lot of stuff, but you guys have actually been in the trenches, you know, with, with, with patients or in clients who, who have had these, uh, these things. And regardless of, we often as bodybuilders are like, oh, I want to see research on bodybuilders, but bodybuilders are humans and, you know, humans eat food. So there's a ton of parallels. So what I wanted to do is get together with them and say, Hey, we need to describe, you know, what are the demands of the sport? What, what is non-negotiable? Um, and then what can we improve upon? And I, I kind of had it in my mind. This was right around the time where intuitive eating uh, was starting to kind of hit the scene. I mean, it had been around out for a while, don't get me wrong, you know, in weight neutral strategies, but it hit our scene and was heavily misunderstood in the evidence-based community. Um, and it doesn't really have a lot of obvious utility to athletes who need or they benefit from, I should say, um, control of nutritional variables to benefit performance or benefit their body composition, which is pretty much like the, like, like if you're, if you're bulking right now, you, you're not intuitive eating, you know, um, if, if you're cutting, you're not intuitive eating. Those are weight neutral strategies are actually focus on focusing on modifying your, your body. Right. So it's, it, it is antagonistic to it. It's, it's not the same thing. It can't be the same thing. They're mutually exclusive. However, there are some really interesting concepts into an intuitive eating, uh, like, uh, using in, internal, internal guidance of cues. So using, using hunger cues and satiety cues, uh, and trying to work towards, you know, body acceptance, um, which, which at times is really helpful for athletes because like as a bodybuilder, once you get stage lean and, and you're rewarded for it, that's the pinnacle. And you're always trying to get back to it, but you only spend a few months in that condition. And then you try to beat it next season to see if you'd actually made enough off-season improvement. So you, it's very easy to hate your body, except when you're in shape, which is a really crappy place to, to live. So, you know, learning to fall in love with and, and, and be okay with your off-season body, uh, appreciating, you know, uh, the process being focused on, on training. These are things we've always talked about in, in 3D Muscle Journey, but it was really interesting to see when I was starting to read the research, just how a lot of the aspects of competitive bodybuilding drive people towards things that look a lot like eating disorders and body image concerns. So the, what we tried to do in this paper was first, it, it's, it's, it's a tough balance because this is a, a narrative review and we have such limited data on this, but we also want it to be prescriptive because it's so needed. So you'll see a lot of our language is very cautious. We'll say things like, hey, we don't know what the chicken or the egg here is. Are there more people with a predisposition and mm -hmm. a history of eating disorders who are getting into the sport, which is why we're seeing these high rates? Or is the sport causing it or contributing to it or some combination of all those? We don't know. However, here are some things that can likely mitigate the harm, which have no downside and can work within as we described in the title, the paradigm of the demands of the sport without necessarily sacrificing performance. Because ultimately, while high-performance sport and health are not the same, when they actually go against each other, that's when you get athlete burnout, injury, or the inability to keep performing. Mm -hmm. So no, contest-ready bodybuilder is not healthy. 
even a natural bodybuilder. Heart health is probably good, but a lot of other things like red S up, up the yin yang, right? Um, so the, it's essentially like, how do we mitigate as much harm as possible and how do we work? To, and if we think about it, sometimes athletes love to just focus on the next competition. So it's our job as coaches to help them think about their whole athletic career. So how do I keep someone in the game for 20 years? How do I not have them, you know, not have a menstrual cycle for three years? That's probably not a good state for the off season. That's probably not a good, you know, hormonal and stress level environment for building muscle. Um, and more importantly, how do I keep them in the game if they're slowly getting burned out? Mm. So ultimately the bigger that lens is and the longer the time frame you're looking at for athletic performance. And that's why people, when I talk about what I do in the sport, I don't go, I focus on mental health. I often talk about, I'm here to provide athletes a sustainable career mm. because then they become one of the same performance and sustainability, uh, which, which parallels mental and physical health. Uh, become the same when you're no longer focused on just the next competition, but you're thinking, I love this thing. I think I want to compete at it as a master's. How do I get myself from being 25 to 45? Mm. It's certainly not going to be by blowing out your hamstring and having an eating disorder by your third show, you know? Um, so that's really what this paper is getting at. And it tries to go through a kind of a series of processes of looking at like, what are the theoretical drivers of potential harm? in physique sport and which are modifiable. So in, in figure one, which, which I think is pretty cool. We talked about uh, the predisposition aspect. Cause I do think that's actually a huge piece. If you had to say, what is driving more the fact that we have high rates of people with disordered eating and body image concerns in sport, is it because they had a history of that and they're drawn to the sport? Uh, or is it that the sport's giving it to them? I'd say it's probably predisposition. Hmm. Like, I don't think we have really solid evidence that if you, if you do a show, it's going to give you an eating disorder. I think we have a lot of solid evidence to show that people who compete in physique sport often have prior and maybe existing, or at least, or they've recovered from some of these body image and eating disorder concerns that we're talking about. And they can, they can certainly be exacerbated, maintained, or have a relapse from competing because it asks you to do a lot of the same behaviors. So the predisposition aspect is hundred percent there. And if, if I were to say these words to a bodybuilder, they'd probably smile and think, Oh, that, that sounds like me. Like, so perfectionism, obsessive tendencies, uh, a need for control, binary thinking and neuroticism. I identify with, with most of those, you know? So mm -hmm. th these are things that, uh, are predispositions towards eating, you know, like, not only eating disorders and body image concerns, but they're also very common traits among physique athletes. Can we change that? No, like that. That's kind of the thing that, that people are like that. That's, that's the personality traits of someone who's like, you know, it sounds really, really cool for me to weigh my food to the gram for six months, drop my body fat level to, you know, uh, to essential only like no sub Q and see what my body looks like. Cause I'm so interested in looking like an anatomy chart while I still figure out a way to train. Like everyone loves that kind of personal science experiment aspect of it. Um, and it is this kind of double-edged sword of they, they have a tendency towards, but they also get you know, sometimes messed up by that, that need for control and they can express it through the sport and finding like the right balance is kind of the challenge of each individual competitor. So that is what it is. Um, I think acknowledging that there is a double edge to that sword there is a big piece and then evaluating from kind of a, kind of an objective perspective. All right. What things do I need to be controlling and which things don't, and then to what degree, 
Mm. And that's kind of another element of my career as a sports nutritionist and uh, like the guidance of my pyramids is like, hey, let's stop looking at this as that binary aspects. I think the one thing that is modifiable in which we've seen through the research on flexible and rigid restraint that's gone back to the late 90s is that if you move people from a rigid restraint mindset to a flexible mindset, they typically get a greater likelihood of weight loss maintenance and a lower likelihood of eating disorders in the process of weight loss. And that is a modifiable trait. You might have a predisposition to being a little more black and white of a thinker, or I'm a all or nothing person. People describe it typically like that, but that's modifiable. So the bodybuilders who I've met who lend themselves towards extremes that allows them to perform at a high level, but it typically shortens their career. Mm. So from a coaching perspective, we try to do things to kind of help them find the middle ground to make their off seasons have a little more control and to, to get the mental energy and the lack of burnout to do that by making their in seasons, maybe a little less extreme. Um, so that that's a huge challenge for bodybuilders, but that is something modifiable. Um, then there's biology, which it's going to be what it's going to be. But if we take the best approaches we, we have with the science, we can mitigate those effects. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, this goes back to what you said, REDS, relative energy deficiency and support. There's no way around it. We're asking people to get incredibly lean. Uh, we're asking them to train in that process and they might have to do cardio. It is inevitable that you see those symptoms. The question is, how bad are they? How long are they around? And then how long, uh, how long does it take to recover from them? Yeah. That's essentially the name of the game with, um, with where I think really sports nutrition shines, you know, like yeah. let's get you out of a deficit after the show. Uh, yeah. let's, let's consider the potential of either nonlinear dieting, um, which is still up for debate as to whether or not that might have a positive impact on this or just simply taking a slower approach so that the deficit is never quite as large. Mm. Um, but yeah, ultimately severity and duration. Exactly. That that's, that's all we can do. Right. Um, and, and certainly from what I've seen as, as we've taken these more moderate approaches, a greater proportion of the prep and a great way to look at it that you can kind of, anyone can do without needing to measure these things, uh, in a lab setting is for your female athletes. When do they lose their menstrual cycle? How early into prep? And then how quickly does it come back? So with things uh, that we may or may not talk about in this podcast, like the recovery diet, uh, taking diet breaks and just dieting slower, um, we've seen some pretty big changes. We've even had bikini competitors who don't lose their menstrual cycle, or at least it's kind of sputtering. They got a little bit of oligomenorrhea at the end, but it's not like, you know, just gone. Um, So, yeah, I mean, so we can, we can modify biology to the degree that we can, but ultimately a lot of the strategies we use to make the deficit more survivable is used to get someone even leaner because mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of the nature of the sport. So it's like, Oh, like we, we saved your sanity and now we can get you from 8% to 6% and now you feel like shit again. So, <laughs> you know, we improve yeah, performance yeah. and then it feels terrible. Yeah. You're sleeping through the night. Awesome. We're going to do this for another eight weeks. And when, when you're an insomniac, then we go for four more. Yeah. And that is, that is honestly, especially for people in their early phases where they're kind of figuring out how do I find the, uh, the, the formula for me to be a successful bodybuilder, meaning getting in shape without losing a lot of muscle mass and peaking. Well, um, it is basically like, where does your willpower stop you as you're figuring that formula out? And then experienced competitors are ones to know their limits essentially, and have found a way to make their limits after the point where they get shredded. Right. (laughs) 
So, yeah. So I think, uh, ultimately once you succeed and figure out that formula, you always are in a state of like, like you get there, you survive, but it, it's, there's no way around uh, a lot of those biological consequences. Mm. And then finally, uh, there's the most modifiable aspect of it. And that is monitoring. So, um, there are a number of behaviors which are, are more associated with um, body image concerns and disordered eating. Um, and some of them, and these have been reported on and off. They're not super consistent findings. And it's, it doesn't mean if you do these, therefore you're going to get or you have an eating disorder. But very frequent self-weighing, um, very frequent physique checking. Sometimes we're talking more than once a day uh, just to, to put some kind of idea on, on when this is typically problematic. Um, and then high levels of, of rigid dietary restraint. So, so tracking food, um, just to give you an example, and this is, uh, not, not necessarily causational, but there have been a number of surveys of people who with a diagnosable eating disorder, and they, they're asked, do you use a food tracking software? So for example, in, in one study, I'm thinking of three quarters of people with an eating disorder use my fitness pal. Yeah. And then in that study, three quarters of those who use MyFitnessPal felt that it contributed to their eating disorder. Mm. I don't think they logged onto MyFitnessPal and gotten an eating disorder in most cases, right? Yeah. Um, but it is certainly something that it provides a outlet for their obsessive tendencies to track and monitor and, and be controlled with their nutrition. So a physique athlete, if you just think about what's the check-in, you report your, your adherence to your macros to your coach, you send a opposing video uh, and you say, send your weigh-ins. Mm. So you're <laughs> so like the three variables that we often are, are, are like, Oh, these are the, these are the issues in, in people with body image concerns and eating disorders. They are our primary metrics as coaches. So to some degree, we can't modify all these factors, but what is the mindset we have when we're doing physique checking? Um, how often are we, we lingering on that or we just leave it to our, our weekly check-in? Um, if you look at some of the, the diagnostic, diagnostic manuals for helping someone with body image concerns, it's going from reducing them looking in the mirror and checking their physique multiple times per day down to you do it in the presence of someone, a clinician, who can help you be objective about it and give you some different self-talk. It's technically not self-talk, they're saying it, uh, and do it less frequently, right? So that can be an active coaching point. Like, Hey, you know, your, your physique's going to be changing a lot. You're going to be in really stressed out states. Um, stay covered up most of the time, you know, focus on the process, not the outcome the stage is far away. And we'll do a evaluation together. Uh, when you do your check-in and it'll be primarily focused on posing, but it'll also give you an opportunity to assess your rate of progress, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not this constant mirror checking, uh, which, which, never really helps. You know, um, once you're in shape, it's great. Cause it's kind of, it's, it's, it keeps you motivated, but not always it, you, your mind gets, can really play some tricks on you. But even in shape, it can sort of like foster that addiction to the unrealistic or attachment of positive to an unrealistic shape or, or, or state as well. It does. And, um, and that is something that I've talked about for a long time is I think people, people really need to separate their, their self-worth uh, and their perception of their body from their body as a bodybuilder to some degree. Mm. I often tell people, Hey, yeah, I know this isn't a performance sport, but I want you to look at it like that, you know? So getting on stage, hitting a, a fantastic riddle bicep and displaying striations in your glutes. Think of it like throwing a 90 mile per hour fastball. Like that's, that's an extreme athletic feat. Um, but 
it's not like when you didn't throw a 90 mile per hour, 90 mile per hour fastball, you had no worth or you were a bad human. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of athletes who do view themselves. They have a strong sense of athletic identity. Mm -hmm. And if they can't be an athlete, they don't know who they are. So that's, that is a problem across sports. If you look at um, people who score very highly on athletic identity and they get injured and have to forcibly retire, they typically experience much greater uh, psychological stress than those who have, I guess, a more diversified sense of self, if you will, when they're then, I'm, I'm not just a football player. I'm also uh, a, a businessman. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a father, I'm a husband. So like, like that, that's a better athlete state um, than, than having a really, really high athletic identity and then, you know, ACL. So yeah. same thing is true in bodybuilding. Um, we often, often talk about trying to get our clients to look at performance, think about other aspects, focus on the process, have an intrinsic reason to compete, love the off season. Um, and, and also just, you know, enjoy all the things outside of the sport, really, uh, have, have a life, you know, be Eric, the bodybuilder, or sorry, be Eric who bodybuilds, not Eric, the bodybuilder type of thing. Hmm. So that's a balancing act. So yeah, between physique checking, you know, dietary tracking and self-weighing, you need to basically find what's the, uh, what do we need to do in terms of actually getting into shape? Um, and giving someone confidence that that will happen and having predictable and reliable data to help someone do that. Uh, and, and what is over, over and over the top and unnecessary. So, um, you know, there's, there's slowly research coming out on like if it fits your macros and similar approaches like that, that suggest that this is a very viable way of doing it. Um, and so elements of that, the built-in, like how much flexibility can we have when we still need to institute a deficit? Well, uh, we, we, we can have, you know, like a protein and calorie target, or we can have flexible ranges for carbohydrates and fats. Um, we can make sure we hit certain minimums and then have a calorie maximum. So we have uh, discretionary calories, things like that. Um, okay. So we need to weigh our food and control our deficit, but do we need to hit our macros to the gram within 10 grams, five grams? So a lot of what we recommend in the paper is like, Hey, let's have reasonable ranges, like hit your macros within 10 grams, not to the gram. Mm-hmm. Um, and give yourself like track to the point that, 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 that matters, you know? Um, so for example, we talk about as you go into the off season and as you transition, we gave different strategies for different stages of prep. Yeah. So like, uh, I, we, we talked a lot about like, here's what can happen. Like, high rates of eating disorders, high rates of, of disordered eating. Uh, we talk about basically the symptoms of red S from, a, from reds, from, from the mental health perspective, uh, and the like psychological stress scores that competitors experience. And yeah, they're bad. They're terrible. We all know that. Right. Cause I um, think a lot of people don't, that if they hear reds, they think, okay, well, f- physiologically, Hey, if it's a female, they're going to lose their period. That's pretty much it. And they, they still sort of underestimate the fact that it is like a multi-system and like multi-physiological dimensional uh, affliction, right? Absolutely. Like yeah. And they under they underestimate the psychological, uh, like imp- or the 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 physiological impact that it has on psychology at the, for that person at that point in time. Where it's like, hey, if you have reds, like you do not trust your head to make oh, objective decisions. 100%. And this is part and parcel of the biological response, like you said, Alex, and, and we've known this for, for 70 years. Yeah. So Minnesota, this goes Minnesota, so. Yeah, all the way back to Ansel Keys, biology of starvation. Um, the, 
the, the men, the, the conscientious objectors who volunteered to go for six months on half the calories they needed to maintain weight so that we would better understand how to deal with Holocaust survivors and POWs from World War II, all of them were diagnosable with anorexia nervosa by the end of the study. Um, a number of them dropped themselves out of the study by inducing self-harm. One person actually cut off their finger, I believe. Yeah. Uh, num- a number of them became chefs because they got so obsessed with food after the fact. Yeah. They had to induce a buddy system to help people comply with the study so that the two people would go together and so they wouldn't go off the diet. And this was in a very different era. So like once you sign up for the study, like they tried to force you to stay in it until you actually did something that forced you to be out of it. So for example, two participants broke into the on-base commissary, which is like a military grocery store. And they were caught by MPs, military police, just eating sitting down and they had to be kicked out of the study. And that's when they instituted like the buddy system. Um, so like, if you read about what happened in these studies, they were getting really weird food behavior. So they were eating, uh, foods and mixing water with them to bulk them up. And their meal times were getting longer and longer and longer and longer because they were just had all these food rituals. Um, a number of them were in university at the same time and had to drop out because they couldn't focus uh, or they were just too depressed. Depression was rampant. And yeah, I mean, a, another way to look at it is, you know, the female athlete triad includes disordered eating and eating disorders, right? Mm. And that sits within reds. Yeah. So the, I, I think people definitely need to get away from the idea of having a very, yeah, the, the cause is physiological as to what red reds does, but it's 2021. Like the brain, the brain's an organ. It is physiological. It's like neuroscience, physiology, psychology, all, all, all one and the same and have a lot yeah. of overlap and parallels. Right. Yeah, sure. So yeah, well said. So I think, um, uh, I mean, as you were talking through, uh, you know, like, like, I guess all the areas that like within the paper that you addressed. And I think for anyone listening, if you haven't read it, read it, but set time aside to read it because it's a big paper. I had to get through it three times before I could properly comprehend it. And even now having read it at least five, I still can't recall everything. And, and funnily enough, Eric's got it in front of him to then be able to recall the stuff more accurately as we speak, because it's like, it's, it's a, it's a whopper. Yeah. it's, it's a big paper. Um, and so as you've spoken about them in isolation and then um, certain things that we can, uh, like strategies we can implement to attenuate certain aspects of it, um, in isolation, it, it, like it's it sounds like um, potentially, hey, if we do this one thing, then we've covered for that. I guess putting my practitioner hat on and going, right, I'm a sports nutritionist. I'm working with comprep clients. One thing that I would add to that is, is like, it's like you're constantly triangulating strategies based on predisposition and experience and literacy at both a qualitative and quantitative um, level, depending on the client. And so their experience will dictate how literate they are qualitatively and quantitatively. And this is, this sort of falls back to, I guess, when we were sort of first connecting and you were in the process, I think of like really starting this paper, but you were in the, you just sort of finished up the second edition um, updates to the muscle and strength pyramid books. 
and you were like, wow, I've like, you know, told people, hey, track this and feeling like guilty for contributing to eating disorders and stuff, right? So you're like, hey, we have to have this. That's when you started introducing periodized uh, intuitive intuitive eating and flexible restraint um, periods where no quantitative uh, tracking and self-monitoring was really occurring. Yeah, man. So the um, it's, it's a funny thing how flexible dieting is kind of a shifting goalpost. Like if, if you came from a, a hardcore traditional bodybuilding background where it's like eat six foods, being given the flexibility to eat any food you want so long as it hits your macros, is this certainly a step in the right direction? And th- this is reflected in the difference between, you know, like flexible and rigid restraint. However, there's been research done to show that rigid restraint and flexible restraint share a whole lot of variance because we've seen people who take tracking macros to a rigid degree. Mm. So rigid and flexible restraint are our mindsets. They are sub factors of the restraint factor of the three factor eating questionnaire. And so it means it's actually about your perceptions and the way you view food and dieting and your, and your relationship with food, whether you do, you view it black and white is really what what it comes down to. Uh, And people definitely can view macro tracking in a black and white fashion. So moving from rigid bodybuilding approach to rigid macro tracking to then more flexible macro tracking to then realizing, man, I don't even want to flexibly track my macros for the next six years in the off season has mm-hmm. been my personal journey. And it also is reflected in the literature, which has been very interesting to me uh, in that the, the idea of tracking all the time eventually becomes unpalatable to most people mm-hmm. um, or unsustainable is probably a, a more on point verbiage there. So, so what do we do about that? You know, and the, while it is not intuitive eating, cause so, so you're, you're eating to get hypertrophy in the off season, we can take the internally cue guided aspect of it, uh, and apply it. So what I was essentially trying to get people to do is I've, I've created a system to help someone get back to using satiety and hunger to guide their food intake. Because one of the things you see when you are using an external cue tracking macros, as an example, to manipulate your food intake is you learn, you you lose touch with your awareness of your internal cues. Mm. And this has actually been objectively studied, uh, by having people, you know, guess their heart rates. Um, and, and, and basically how much internal awareness do you have of, of, of your body? Um, how well do you quote unquote, listen to your body that can actually be a thing and people who regulate their food purely by external things are, are worse at that. And I, I mean, if you ask most competitors, they go like, I, I don't think about hunger. That that's an obstacle. It's something to, to fight against, not yeah. to consider. Yeah. And, and ironically, all the intuitive eating research is based around teaching people to relearn how to listen to these cues. And we find that while it is a weight neutral approach, it's not designed to help people lose weight. What it typically does is it arrests weight gain. Mm. which is a huge win in, in a society that has an expanding waistline. And mm. it also results in typically in, uh, in, in better mental and sometimes better physical health. Yeah. So, and when you put, put that in the context of a bodybuilder or physique athlete, that's just finished competing and then looking at navigating a recovery diet and off season transition. Exactly. So there's no way around it. You're going to need to combat hunger 
when you're, when you're prepping. Cause it, it, it is the thing that's going to make you do what will have you gain fat because everything in your body biologically, like we talked about based on Ansel keys is going to be telling you eat more when you need to be in shape and you can't cause you've got to compete. And when the show is over, that's when you're going to eat. And it's going to be a, yeah, an unfillable degree of hunger for a while. Um, but what most people make the mistake of doing is they try to take a really, really rigid approach, kind of your, your kind of the worst iteration of the quote unquote reverse diet after a season is over. Not most people, but a lot of people do this It's become popular in the last 10 years of slowly adding food back in, which requires more restraint and results in this yo-yo diet. Mm. Um, and then you feel worse about it because you've lost a sense of control. You're starting to degrade the self-efficacy you built of going, wow, I made it all the way through contest prep. And now it's like, yeah, and now I can't not eat M&Ms. Like what happened to me, you know? Um, and that was very much my 07 experience. So the, say, the, the M&Ms is like really oddly specific right now. You know, you, you gotta love those little chocolate bastards. So <laughs> the, uh, so yeah, the, whatever someone's, uh, you know, food rebound of choice is, and it's probably more than one, uh, it's all of a sudden your, your willpower just seems like it's gone. Mm. Um, and you're going to gain that weight back. And instead of fighting against that, the idea of having a recovery diet is saying, Hey, you are, are you're, you're basically hypogonadal right now. If you're a man, you're amenorrheic. If you're a woman, mm. uh, you're not in a great place to build muscle. Um, what we need to do is put back on some body fat. So let's aggressively not binge eating though, give you the guidance to actually start gaining weight. So mm -hmm. what that looks like in practice is, you know, you might've been on 1800 calories at the end of your prep. And now we're going immediately into like a thousand calorie surplus. So you might be up to like 3,400 calories as mm -hmm. opposed to that reverse diet mentality of like, okay, we'll go to 22, you know, we'll put you just at maintenance, maybe with, with some suppression of your energy expenditure and then we'll slowly build it up from there. And then every third day you're at 6,000. Yeah. Now we're saying, Oh my God, we nearly doubled your food intake. We cut back your cardio. Yes. You're gaining fat, but 3,400 calories is not an unreasonable energy intake for someone who weighs 160, 170 pounds who lifts weights exactly. three to six days a week. Right. Exactly. So now we're, we're, we're purposely gaining body fat, we're regaining muscle mass. Uh, and those two things are, are what's required to actually get the, the quote unquote metabolic recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, we see that until uh, the lost lean body mass is restored and to some degree, the lost fat mass is restored, do we start to see the, the normalization of hormonal levels, hunger, satiety, and metabolic adaptation coming back to normal. So there's, there's no way around it. So essentially, the approach is to expediently get someone up to kind of their lower end settling range where they can comfortably sit at a good lean off-season uh, body composition. Um, maybe where they would be, I don't know, at the start of prep or a month or two into prep. And then from there, then we slow down. And the goal is then to start progressing towards an internally cued uh, approach. So I think the difference between intuitive eating and an internally guided off-season bodybuilding diet is that you're not weight neutral. So you are attempting to slowly gain weight at whatever rate is appropriate for your training age and whether you're natural or enhanced or what your strategy is to go more aggressive and then take mini cuts or, or, you know, slower, uh, whatever. However, you can get there without necessarily tracking calories. Mm -hmm. You can simply try to be more satiated after each meal. So you can take a one to five rating scale as an example, or one to 10, uh, the one to 10 is more common. You'll see like 10 is stuffed. One is I'm going to pass out. I'm so hangry that I'm going to probably eat your hand. And then you're like, you know what? We want to hang out 
in like the four to six range. Four is, oh, I'm a little hungry. Five is I'm neutral and six, I'm a little full. Like mm-hmm. that, that range right there is typically associated with being weight stable. If we shift that down over three to five, you're probably going to be in a deficit. And if we shift it up to five to seven, you're probably going to be in a slight surplus. So it's basically doing that. So we keep the, we, we, we now are focusing on guiding our portions, essentially, how much do we eat by hunger? And we're still kind of having a sport supportive, quote unquote, meal structure. So it's going to be, you know, a fruit or vegetable, uh, a grain and a large serving of a, of a lean protein, or maybe less lean protein in the off season, whatever your energy requirements are. And then you eat more or less of each one of those proportions based on your, your hunger and satiety and ensure that you do gain weight at an appropriate rate. And narrow macro was tracked, you know? Exactly. And I think the focus becomes more rather than food and body composition or like food and like weight loss focused measurements associated with weight loss, scale weight associated with weight loss and food associated with weight loss. It's like, how full are you feeling? How's your gym performance? We've really got to get after it in the gym. So a big portion of the focus sort of shifts there, um, which is very different to like self-critiquing uh, body image focuses. And then, you know, how's your weight trending at a, yeah. a much reduced frequency of weighing? Absolutely. I think that that's a great summary, Alex. And, and, you know, if you, if you look at the, if you just go right to the end of this, this, this paper, if you don't want to read the monster that, that Alex talked about, I, I, in table two, we go through, um, basically what do we think has a probability to be helpful, no probability to be harmful, and that will still align with the goals of the bodybuilding sport, uh, that should help people mitigate some of the potential harm. And we have six steps for the, the comp prep three for the transition to the off season and four for the off season. So real quick, a non-dichotomous black or white, good and bad view of foods, um, that, that could include, include like if it's your macros type approaches Two would be uh, moderate weight loss rates. So not losing really, really fast. Uh, three, uh, giving ranges for, for calories or macronutrients rather than uh, specific food source restriction. Yeah. And uh, having two to five yep. grams, not two to five grams. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes no sense. Right. You know I mean? There's more variance in that and just how accurate the food labels are themselves. Yeah. Um, flexibility and when you eat, since we know, pretty well that so long as you have decent protein spread, anything from three to six meals is not going to make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, having scheduled and supervised physique assessments. So it's really just trying to keep those, those posing and physique updates and evaluations to your check-ins with your coach. Uh, and then potentially intermittent dieting strategies. And I was actually pretty pleased with, with this recommendation. You know, we were going out on a limb. There was very little at the time. And the research that's coming out now that uh, soon to be Dr. Pios has done and that's come out of Bill Campbell's lab, the, the, the impact of nonlinear so diet breaks and refeeds that are most consistently observed are actually related to adherence and hunger management. Hmm. So I am, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like, Oh good. The data is still pointing in that same direction that, that as far as mental health, sustainability of the diet and making the overall process less stressful, some of these approaches of using diet breaks seem to have value. Debate's still out there as far as, you know, metabolic adaptation, muscle retention, all that stuff. Um, but that's not really what this paper's about. So that I, I still think that's on the table and the data yeah. is even strengthening that. Yeah, I, I would suggest as well, like in looking at the data, but this is my theory and um, you touched on it before, like conducting research and doing research is really altruistic, right? Um, 
within the association, like we've just set up the offices and labs now with the intent um, to publish and be a part of the publication of about four to five novel research projects annually. At the moment, awesome. we have to increase that because while it might seem like we have this huge body of information to and like this huge pool of information to sources as, as it relates to um, sports nutrition, um, performance, uh, like, like hypertrophy and muscle sciences and then performance sciences as well, like athletic performance sciences. We really don't. And yeah. I know you've spoken about, uh, just, just the, um, like the, like the cohort sizes that we have when we compare this to like medical research and like the effect sizes that we can have and the conclusions that we can draw, we're really limited to that. And we still don't have that much research as it relates to that as well. So, um, you know, we're sort of looking at things that we can um, like do and sort of like answers, like questions that we can answer or questions that we can get from or further questions that we can like actually and legitimately ask, um, you know, from these studies, by no means are we saying, Hey, four studies, we've really got all the answers, but we'd like to ask further questions or see what the further questions are. And from Jackson's, one of the hypotheses that sort of I've drawn for myself in looking at the research, both, um, the ice cap trial, and then a couple of the publications that he's had, um, follow suit. I know that you and James were a part of one when it just looked at, uh, diet diet breaks in physique athletes more specifically that they have one of the things that i'd like to sort of look at or like see looked at would be uh that we're, what we're seeing is with within the matador which was the obese populations they responded really well and what i'm hypothesizing is there might be like an like a an inverted u effect where if like people are really overweight and 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 i would what, I, what I'm sort of thinking and suggesting is that it's not for the same reason. So here, physiologically and psychologically, diet breaks matter for overweight and obese populations and people for different reasons than people who are really, really lean Yep, where, where it can impact them positively as well. And so we might see, you know, small, but still statistically significant improvements in retention of lean body mass and, uh, resting metabolic rate in extremely lean people. And then the acute on chronic, uh, considerations for that. Hey, like if they're having a diet break one in every eight weeks, psychologically, we know there's huge improvements, but it might be small, but still somewhat statistically significant. If we're looking at that in the scope of contest preparation, then those one and a half percent improvements, if that's going to occur three times that that could have a compoundingly, you know, net positive effect when compared to a 24 week preparation phase, it doesn't include that. It's certainly possible. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to it being exactly that, that once you really do get to start to see some of the effects of uh, low energy availability for a long time, that intermittently having available energy has some beneficial physiological effects. I'm also open to it just being that bringing food up uh, and then getting some of these like losses of, of water that mm -hmm. prevent you from then making the next cut make it just so that you diet on higher calories the whole time. Uh, or just that the psychological benefit of being able to perform every once in a while or not have as much hunger yeah. has these, you know, uh, knock on effects. So it's, there's a number of different ways it could go, but, um, yeah, at this stage, I think we can confidently say 
the very least, it's got some beneficial effects for hunger control adherence, um, which I, sh- I don't think should be undervalued in physique sport. Yeah, massively, massively. Yeah. So for the practitioners out there, and we're like, in, they say, okay, like a client's coming to me and they want to do a prep, and we've got our steps, like the way the way that uh, they should be approaching it. Um, and I guess like, so, you know, coming full circle to that person that's doing it for their bucket list and the sports chewed them up and spit them out. Now it's this skeleton, this traumatic skeleton in the closet that they just don't want to talk about. It was the Facebook profile picture they deleted. Um, you know, how can we better equip the professional to be able to deal with that person who really, you know, for the sport is always going to have these people who just want to bucket list it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this actually goes, I'm glad you brought us back to, Hey, this person's coming to you. Um, because yeah, I, I, like, like I said, there's, there's things we recommended in season off season and in the transition, but I think the most important piece of advice that we made in this paper was to have someone who you can refer to who is actually a professional in this area. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, Steve Taylor, who's a registered dietitian, who is part of Team 3D Muscle Journey. Um, he goes over every single application that comes through and looks at it from the lens of clinical nutrition. Um, and he contacts each coach and says, hey, you know, here's what here, here was their application, which is extensive. It goes over what is your current diet? And I'll even come back to that. It has a lot of items for him to look at and then compare um, what do we give them? And are there any things we missed? Cause we're not RDs. We're not coming at it from a clinical nutrition perspective. In addition to Steve, we also have Amanda. So Amanda Rizzo is a, a licensed professional counselor, licensed professional clinical counselor, excuse me. And she has a master's degree in this and she specifically works with people for mental health. And she has a lot of experience in both body image concerns and disordered eating. So both of them, collaborated to update and modify. And we continue to do this with our application for athletes. So we have questions that were specifically written by them or modified by them that ask people about their current relationship with the sport, their body and food. Um, and we make sure that we, we can get the information from them to where Steve or Amanda could look at that and say, Hey, Brad, Eric, or Berto, you're focusing on more of this from the, how do we set them up from a performance perspective as a bodybuilder, but Hey, consider this, like that's kind of a a concerning behavior. Let's have a, have a greater conversation with them. Mm. So I think what this paper might make a coach feel like they need to do is go get a degree in psychology. (laughs) Rather what you need to do is get a psychologist who you trust and respect and who can be taught about the sport a little bit and what the demands of it are, or I, I ideally you can find someone who does have that experience um, and have a, them as a referral network. Mm. Um, I think it's a good idea to be familiar with what are the, uh, the classifications of eating disorders, body image concerns, and what are the diagnostic criteria. Um, just read up on them. If they're all available, not because you're going to be diagnosing your clients, because you're definitely not. <laughs> and Alex can tell you that as the man who knows all about liability and insurance and le- in legal scope of practice. Yeah. Stay away from that. <laughs> way, 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 way. <laughs> However, um, 
this can give you a ton of peace of mind so that if you're seeing a behavior that is, that is raising the hackles on your neck and you're concerned for your client, you can reach out to this professional and say, Hey, here's what I'm seeing. What do you think? And then they can, they can get in touch with you. So the way we do it, and this is just a model, it's not the model is that, uh, we have both Amanda and Steve on this basically like a, a retainer so that any of our coaches can reach out to them about a client. And then if, uh, the, the client, if, 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 that that communication results in Steve or Amanda going, you know what, I would really like to like work with this person, then they can reach out to the client themselves and they can have their own relationships. That way we can respect privacy and, and health information and all of that. Um, and you know, then it is up to the client. Like, do they actually want to work concurrently with an RD or a mental health professional and a coach? Um, sometimes the answer is no, because there's a cost associated with that. But again, it is about that informed consent and we do have them uh, there to help us, screen initially. So if there is something that is a, a red flag, um, we can actually say, Hey, you know, this is something that we're concerned about. We would love you to work concurrently, uh, or at least consult concurrently, maybe at least once just to, you know, make sure that you're, you're not in a position where we could be doing you harm because this isn't our scope with either Amanda and or Steve. Um, and they can give you advice. Uh, they, they, they can talk to you about this. Here's what I'm concerned about. Do it from a place of compassion, understanding, and also normalizing it. That's another thing that's really important is you don't want to make someone feel like, oh, you used to have an eating disorder. You're too broken for us. Mm -hmm. I think the way to have that conversation, and it's never easy, is to say like, hey, I've, I've, I've probably had an eating disorder that went undiagnosed. I've been there. I do not want you to experience the pain that I had. I want you to, to be able to compete on your own terms. Would you be open to just, you know, having a sit down with, with Steve or Amanda, um, in mm. whatever the context is, there'd be a, appropriate cases either way, but the take home message while I'm kind of talking through how we do it is that you want to have these people you want to, and you don't have to hire them. They don't have to be on your webpage. You don't have to do all this stuff. You really just need to have someone who you feel comfortable reaching out to who can, you can refer people to them and maybe, maybe vice versa. So it's a, this beneficial symbiotic relationship. Uh, basically it, it's, it's the same model that uh, a personal trainer would use with physio. You know, I work with them and, and also, by the way, we have a physical therapist on staff, you know, Nick Licamelli for the same reason. Like, um, if, if you're not a physical therapist, if you're not a registered dietitian, if you're not a, a, a licensed psychologist and you're working in a sport or, or in bodybuilding, which, you know, some consider a sport, um, you could get, you're going to have people who get injured, who, uh, you know, deal with some significant mental stress, uh, and potentially have clinical nutrition issues. And that's out of your scope. So what are you going to do? You're either opening yourself up for, for negligence or, or, or being, being liable, or you can, you can have these people who can really aid you. And, and more importantly than just CYA, uh, they can help your clients in ways that you may have not even known because you don't know what you don't know. That's why they're called blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd say the most important thing anyone can do rather than trying to follow like the steps in table two is, is get people you trust who are professionals uh, who have the training that you don't to be available so that if your clients do get in a bad way, you can provide them the help they need. Yeah, definitely. I would say uh, you, you know, it's like you, it's like you suggested, um, earlier when, or like when you were reflecting about your own experience with your earlier bodybuilding shows where you were dieting down low energy availability, deadlifts, hill sprints. Hey, I've got to get that. Um, I've got to get that really good result. You're in that, you're in that short, like you're in that, I guess, short term, really narrow sided, like 
extrinsic motivation perspective, um, that's when those blind spots are more likely to be prevalent as well for the professionals. And, and for some of the people listening or watching this, and if you're thinking, well, hey, that's the th- that, like the 3DMJ guys had the luxury of doing this because of who they are and their reputation and their waiting list, that's true, right? They, they do, but they're, they're doing it. And like Eric suggested, have someone that you can refer to. You don't have to retain them. But if the idea of referring to someone or working in conjunction with that and then looking at the paper and looking at the systems and the recommendation that are, in, that are involved with that uh, is, isn't really appealing to you, that's probably an indication that that impatience and short-sightedness is, is there where these blind spots are going to occur. And then even though you have the best of intentions to look after someone, you're probably rushing things a little bit too much where you are potentially setting them up to be, you know, chewed up and spat out by the sport, which is definitely something that we don't want because it's something that you can actually, and uh, this is something that we haven't touched on yet, but Eric in his last prep was really enjoying the asceticism of the whole experience. And that's something that we could be helping people to experience in a really positive way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the, um, the negative aspects of the sport, but my main motivation for wanting to help people mitigate that potential downside is because the upsides are pretty awesome. Mm. You know, it's given me a artistic outlet. It's given me a sense of, I guess the kids these days would, would, would refer to it as stoicism, even though it's obviously a (laughs) thousand year, multiple thousand year old philosophy, but, um, it gives you a sense of self-efficacy, grit, resilience, and it allows you to put hardships in perspective when you've pushed yourself to your limits. Um, it's made me a more capable businessman. It's made me better in my relationships and it's made me appreciate life more. And there's actually some qualitative data out there where they've interviewed physique athletes and they said that it's given them a sense of accomplishment uh, and a sense of empowerment. And that is 100% the case. Uh, and I want people to experience that and that to be the dominant experience. Hmm. So if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to give it to him straight. You, you, you mentioned how, you know, 3DMJ, we have a well, well-known, we've got a waiting list. We have the, the luxury of being able to be selective with our clients and, and, and then have all these processes and, you know, these, these up and coming coaches, they are going to take anyone who comes to them because they need to, to pay the bills. Um, I'm going to give it to you straight. All you coaches who are listening, who may think that and go, right, well, once I'm actually financially stable, uh, I'll, I'll do this stuff, but until then I just got to get by. I've been there. I understand, but what's the alternative? You take someone on and you don't have a referral network who gets in a bad way. You do your best to help them and something really bad goes on for them. And now you get a reputation for negligence at the beginning of your career. Uh, you're done, you know, especially in the social media age, you're done. Yeah. Um, you're going to have a Reddit thread about you. You're going to have posts about you on social media. And now you're going to be trying to make it while trying to manage that. You won't be in a position where you have the financial means to protect yourself from that. Um, And it'll always cost less to do it right from the start than it will to have to correct that when you're talking about someone's life. So, you know, uh, Yes, it, it is a much easier to do this when you have an established business, but I would say that you, you can't afford not to do it if you mm-hmm. want to 
you know, have a career. Yeah. You need to be like with anything, start with the end in mind as well. The last thing that you want to be doing is moving the goalposts on your clients and prospective clients when you get to a point that you consider reasonable enough to do so, you know, like, like start in, in that capacity. Um, just to quickly uh, rehash on some things before we wrap this up. Um, for those of you unaware three with 3DMJ's um, stuff, they're sort of like minimum gold standard that they can quickly pull from people uh, in, in terms of the questionnaire when they're looking at onboarding a potential client if it's around prep is the last like at least four years of resistance training experience with the majority of that time spent in a surplus. So not dieting down for a long period of time and that they have experienced successfully a dieting phase during that four year resistance training period as well. Right. So that's, that did I get that correct? Well, th- those are definitely things we recommend before someone preps. Those aren't those aren't those aren't rec- those aren't like requirements hard hard for someone to work with us per se. So a lot of the times, oh, yeah. no, sorry, yeah, there's always outliers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, or, or even even more so. Like if someone wants to work with us and they want to do a prep and they've been listening for a year, um, what we'll normally do is be like, hey, we'd love to help you do an off season, build some nutritional habits, and let's work towards a competition in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're hell bent on doing a prep, then we think about it because often they will, they'll end up going somewhere else who probably won't take care of them. But, um, do think about that. Like there's, there's, there's no barrier for entry for a local show. Mm-hmm. Um, but would someone be better off? You know, that that's the question. So, you know, when you have someone who has been working out for 16 weeks, has lost a bunch of weight that did a transformation and they want to extend another 16 weeks and get on stage you know, that, that, that's awesome. And you need to ask yourself, is this person going to go hire some other coach who is going to really wreck them? Um, and should I therefore stay with them and do it the best way possible? Um, how attack, or do they have, do they have unrealistic expectations? Are they okay with knowing that they're going to look like a novice bodybuilder on stage? Um, you know, so I think that's the conversation that needs to be had, but those are definitely our recommendations. Uh, we definitely, we, we of course work with first time competitors. Uh, mm-hmm. We of course work with people who are, are even relatively new to the weight room, but we definitely don't recommend that they get on stage yet. Um, mm-hmm. Now, like I said, though, there's a conversation we have if that's, that's really is their goal. Yeah. But that, that, that's a coaching point too. If someone, if someone wants to compete in what is essentially a strength sport when they've only been lifting weights for six months, uh, like that's a coaching point. This person is, it's a lot of passion that needs to be directed towards something that's a little more long-term if they want to be as successful as they, as, as their, their passion indicates they probably want to be. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of experience, you know, as soon as we approach that broader lens and it's like, Hey, the person that wants to like, this is the entirety of the things they need to learn in order yeah. to, you know, successfully go through that process and do so whilst balancing the other psychosocial aspects of their life. Well said. Um, so just quickly from our end, um, within the association, the way that we um, like have our scope of practice aligned for prep specifically as well is that a prep, uh, the, like a, a specific like contest prep um certification or accreditation or level of insurance is offered to those who are at the open and graduate level of accreditation. So they've come through that first three-year period. They're no longer probationary. They've doubled down, done a little bit more study, but they also have a lot more 
clinical experience with clients. And then there's other aspects of the seasonal uh, bodybuilding uh, life cycle that they need to demonstrate competency with as well with that. So if anyone's listening and they think, okay, quick, I'm going to do my cert, then I'm going to start body, you know, prepping people and I'm going to read Eric's paper. Unfortunately, we'd love to, for that to be the case, but we want to make sure that that enthusiasm is tempered and maintained over that three year period. And then once you've come through the other end of that and you're ready, then we have that program set aside for you and you're completely eligible for that at that point in time. I love it. I think, um, it is, it's going to be a rough transition for, for some people as this space becomes more effortly, effortly, it's not a word, but you know what I mean? Purposefully. That's probably the word that people are looking for. We got it there in the end folks, uh, more, more purposefully guided, you know, and has guidance. But if you look at any, any profession where it has become not only just more legitimate, but hopefully there's a better job of taking care of the people it's supposed to take care of there does need to be some constraints put in place and, and to ensure quality and protection. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's a, that's a great way to do it, Alex. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Well, for anyone who wants to check out Eric's paper, it is uh, available open access. I think it's across, is it, is, was it just the nutrition, the journal for nutrition? It is, uh, it's, it's not in the journal of nutrition that that's a much higher impact factor than a lowly bodybuilding paper. Uh, it is, <laughs> it, it is in sports, which is an oh, open access cool. journal, uh, yeah. that, that I, that, that is PubMed index, which is why, why we selected it. Um, so you can find it on PubMed. If you just Google sustainable nutrition and helms, it'll, it'll probably come up. Mm. Uh, you, you can read it on, on the sports website or the full text on PubMed. We'll put it in the links, uh, like in podcast notes. We'll also put it in the the comments uh, on the abbreviated version of this video that, uh, that gets put on YouTube as well. It, and if you want to follow any of Eric's work, if you aren't already, then it's at Helm3DMJ on Instagram. Thank you, sir. Much Thank appreciate you. it.